The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey hits back at criticism the central bank misled markets as sterling sells off sharply on the back of the NPC's surprise decision to keep rates on hold. We don't give a running commentary on what interest rates will be. We do give quite a lot of commentary on the state of the economy and markets have to draw what conclusions they draw from that. UK banks take a bruising immediately sliding on the news with the sell-off continuing into the US and Asian sessions. U.S. jobless claims hit a fresh pandemic-era low as attention turns to today's non-farm payrolls report, with 450,000 jobs expected to be added. OPEC-plus nations dismiss U.S. pressure to turn on the taps, rolling over the August production plan despite a surge in crude prices. What is the problem is the energy complex is going through havoc and havoc. And if it's left unattended to, the, the tail will walk the dog. And here at COP26 in Glasgow, it's the end of week one. And negotiators are cheering progress on cash, coal, methane and trees. As the UN Executive Secretary for Climate Change, Patricia Espinosa, tells CNBC the signs are encouraging. I think there is, um, there is really a, a reason to be, to be hopeful. I, I, cautiously, yeah. cautiously optimistic. Well, quote, we do not provide a running commentary on rates. That was the messaging from the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey to CNBC after the BOE defied market expectations by keeping interest rates on hold. The BOE's decision sent sterling diving below the $1.35 mark. But don't forget, we had a, a much high water level in the October time frame and uh, the trade had started to roll over a little bit before that. We saw, though, an aggressive fall on the back of the moves yesterday. And UK bank stocks bearing some of the pain, selling off sharply as well on concerns about that margin that has started to get baked back into the trade. So you could see the slump that took place across the board there. The BOE was widely expected to raise rates from an all-time low of 0.1% to 0.25% in what would have been its first hike since 2018, thanks in part to hawkish guidance by a number of policymakers. But seven members of the policy committee voted in favour of standing pat, with only two opting to tighten policy. Well, Jeff caught up with Bailey following the press conference and began by asking whether the bank's decision meant that the UK economic recovery is on a knife edge if it would not be able to withstand a 15 basis point increase. It was a close call. Um, uh, I would say. And the reason that, in my own view, the reason that we you know, held off is because we haven't yet seen evidence from the labour market. And that's important. Important for two reasons. One, we haven't seen the evidence of how the labour market has moved on post the end of the furlough scheme. There are over a million, or around a bit over a million people or a million jobs on the furlough scheme at the end of it, which was more than we thought there would be, actually. So clearly that was quite an important you know, moment in time and shift, if you like, in the, in the labour market. And we haven't yet seen any data that really give us a sort of clear steer on what's happened 
post that. We've got a lot of anecdotes from talking to people. I've talked to a lot of firms and so on, but we haven't got that. So that's, that's important. And it's important for the following reason, that although you know, we can't do directly much to use interest rates to tackle the causes of high inflation, because a lot of them are supply bottlenecks in the world economy, if we see pressure emerging in the labour market, and the labour market does look tight in this country at the moment. It does look tight, I would say. If we see that, that sort of pressure emerging, then that's, of course, where interest rates would come into play. It's very clear, then, that at this stage you don't feel it's necessary to act to prevent inflationary expectations becoming anchored into the economy. But you did say in Rome, and I'll quote it back to you, uh, the bank will have to act. And that set the hair running and got the traders and uh, those who speculate on interest rates very excited about the prospect of a move here. Has there been a hit to credibility in your communications? No, let me be clear what I said. I I said it was a conditional statement. We make a lot of conditional statements deliberately. I said if if we saw evidence of uh, medium-term inflation expectations becoming, use the word, de-anchored, if you like, then we will have to act. No, no doubt about that, and I'll say it again today. It's, 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 it's a truism, if you like, but we will have to act. Now, we spend a lot of time, um, as we do, looking at inflation expectations, and we spend a lot of time in, in the production of this monetary policy report. We've included quite a lot of commentary on them in the monetary policy report. Now, we don't yet see, and we don't see the evidence of that, of that happening. But, of course, we are in a, you know, what I might call a sort of a fairly sort of fragile period in that respect because we've got inflation you know, going well above target. You know, the, warning, the warning signs are, are there, the bells are ringing, as it were. So we have to watch this very carefully, and that's what we're doing. So, so should... But, okay. Go on. Now, I, I was just going to say, but of course, none of us, me included, ever said that you know, we would raise interest rates at the November MPC meeting. That's not what we say. But there's a very important message in, in this. Um, Whilst the data is inconclusive and there is opacity as a result of the supply chain issue and as a result of COVID, should the market participants put less emphasis on statements between meetings? How should they adjust their expectation on forward guidance? Well, I don't think we, of course, would ever sort of, in a sense, give a sort of rule rule as to what emphasis you should place on on communications. yeah, we, we, we obviously try to you know, endeavour to make our communications useful, uh, um, you know, make them, in a sense, accurate in terms of what we're saying. But, of course, we don't give a running commentary on what interest rates will be. We do give quite a lot of commentary on the state of the economy, and we do, and this goes back to my own remarks, obviously comment a lot on the monetary policy framework, and that's what I was directing it at. And if, if you don't mind me saying so, let me give you a bit of context for this. Over the summer... We could see evidence of inflationary pressures growing. We commented on it in our own minutes, in our own August monetary policy report. Markets, I have to say, but not just here, but in other parts, were, were actually going in the opposite direction. I mean, yeah, we were looking puzzled um, that you know, if you take sort of medium-term government bond yields, they were actually coming down at that time, and it was a source of some puzzle to us. And it was also a source of cause of some concern as well. And so, yes, you know, we, we, we have turned up the volume in communication, if you like. But, of course, it is conditional. It has to be conditional communication. Markets have to draw what conclusions they draw from that. We, 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 you know, we, we have to stick to that sort of framework. Let me wrap with the final question about what shape the UK consumer is in, according to the bank. We, 
We had those predictions from Andy Haldane, of course, about the V-shaped recovery and how mm. these savings were being built up through the pandemic mm. and they would be spent. But some of the trends, I think, in consumer confidence and around consumer demand appear to be weakening from yep. the reports today. Yes. Is that, do you think, because demand is being uh, destroyed by high prices or is it because those excess savings have now been run down and we've had the best of the post-pandemic bounce? No, I would say the evidence all is that the savings have not been run down. In fact, actually, we haven't changed our assumption on the rundown of savings um, and that it will be, you know, be quite gradual. Uh, and we have, we have seen no, what I might call, boom in rundown in savings. What I think we have seen is a more gradual than we thought rebalancing of the economy. It is happening now, but, it, but it's been taken longer than we thought it would. That, that, what I mean by that rebalancing is the balance of demand from goods to services. So particularly household, household consumption demand moving from goods to services. It's taken longer, and that's probably delayed some of the recovery. It's also, by the way, you know, contributed to some of the supply bottlenecks because the demand for goods, quite a bit of which obviously comes in, um, has, has been stronger. And not just here, actually, in other countries as well. So it's that, that sort of rotation back to the sort of the, the mix of goods and services that we had pre-COVID has taken longer to happen and has probably, you know, had something of a, of a depressive effect on growth and has also tended to, you know, say, act on supply chains, put pressure on supply chains, I should say. Andrew Bailey there talking to Jeff. And I just want to point out, I mean, we've been talking about this for weeks on the network and some of the questions I've been asking some of our, our guests has been, could he just be jawboning? Mm. And they're pretty sure that he wasn't. They thought that he was very confident about having a hawkish stance here. And the market responded. It was uh, almost in some ways a one-way trade. And we know one-way trades are not healthy. So I do wonder whether Andrew Bailey, through that hawkish commentary, was trying to push back against uh, you know, some of the, the concerns out there about inflation, but maybe just went a little bit too far with the market repositioning. And, mm. and he was never quite ready. And if you think about it in a, a loose compare and contrast, the United States recaptured all of it, its lost output very early on on the back of the pandemic, aggressive stimulus measures, it got back to almost square one and then has been growing. But we're still not talking about a rate hike until some point next year at the earliest. Here, we're still trying to recover all of that lost output. We're still a couple of percentage points off as of about July on the output levels. And what are we talking about by comparison? Going into the crisis, this was an economy that was already impacted by Brexit concerns, a couple of trade wars that have been playing out. So what is it exactly as though the economy was growing that fast anyway beforehand to get back mm. to that starting point? It was, like, I think, an average of 0.2 of a percent on quarter. So hardly the sort of position where the central bank needs to be one of the most aggressive in the world in raising interest rates at this point. Now, I think um, the, the Bank of England, MPC and, and um, Andrew Bailey, tried to address this question around whether there was a communication error and was there, whether there was a misinterpretation by the market. And he stood by this point that it was always conditional, his comments around raising rates. And it was the market's job to take those conditional comments and put them into an unconditional context. So um, really stopping short of taking responsibility for sending the wrong signal, but saying that it's the market's job to take what was conditional and put it into context. Um, and also trying to draw out the difference between the U.S. and U.K. situation, to your point, um, and suggesting that the quantitative easing pro program that's taken place in the U.K. is very different than what's happened in the U.S. So it actually um, does make sense sequentially that we're talking about rate rises here in the U.K., 
because we have had this fixed asset investment program, unlike the Federal Reserve. So actually, the sequencing is fairly similar between the Fed and the Bank of England. We know a lot about sequencing after Brexit here in the UK, don't we? And uh, just a reminder, you can read more analysis from the Bank of England's decision to keep rates on hold and watch Jeff's entire interview with the BOE Governor Andrew Bailey at CNBC.com. But of course, plenty of market reaction, Juliana, on the back of this. Absolutely, Karen. So let's take a look starting at sterling and where we're standing this morning. Sterling is currently holding steady around 134.90 versus the dollar. But this comes after the steep sell-off we saw yesterday. We started the session yesterday just under the 137 level and came down to around 135 uh, over the course of the day. So you can see the steep drop here as, again, markets repriced the trajectory for rate rises after the Bank of England's press conference and decision to hold fire on raising rates this time round. Turning to UK banks, we saw a very sharp reaction across the UK banking sector. Lloyd's Group taking a substantial hit, nearly 5%. NatWest also dropping nearly 6%. Barclays, 4% lower. HSBC, about 2.5%. And these were the moves in yesterday's session. Um, obviously, the UK banking sector, big beneficiary to a rising rate environment. And now analysts and investors questioning, not only is the Bank of England not going to move so fast on rates, but might they not also move so far on rates? So really questioning what the trajectory looks like for interest rates here in the UK. Turning to Standard Chartered and HSBC shares in the Hong Kong session, we've got HSBC down 4.5% and Standchart down about 4%. So the selling continues overnight. Turning to fixed income markets, let's take a look at where gilts stand at the moment. We also saw a lot of movement in two-year um, yields, which are now trading around 0.5%, so coming down sharply. Meanwhile, the 30-year trading around 1.1, uh, this is the 20-year, excuse me, trading around 1.19%. We've got the 10-year trading around 0.9%, so a lot of movement in fixed income as well. Looking at the European uh, market more broadly, what we saw yesterday, we did see uh, equities move higher, including the FTSE 100. Of course, the inverse relationship front and center there between sterling and the UK benchmark. So FTSE 100 ending about 0.4% higher. The Zetra DAX about 0.4% as well. So fairly broad-based gains for the European market yesterday. That was the sixth positive session in a row for the stock 600. Karen. Uh, Juliana, let's get some thoughts on the markets and that move by the BOE. Let's get to Sinena Sinha Haldea, who is Global Head of Private Capital Advisory at Raymond James. Nice to have you back with us. That surprise move yesterday that there was no action from the BOE in the market uh, was pretty sure it had it right that there would be a rate hike. Do you think the BOE missed a trick yesterday? Should it have responded to inflation concerns? Nice to be back and, and speak to you again, uh, Karen. I think that the surprise move from uh, Bailey is very much in line with how they make their decisions. However, much more surprising is the absolute volatility created by the miscommunication. I mean, let's make no mistake. It has been a little bit of a surprise to see Bailey say that they would, would essentially give give market certainty slash high confidence that they would move this month, but ending up not doing so. Now his rationale and the and the committee's rationale for not moving rates this month makes a lot of sense that they want to see how the labor markets evolve and and so on. But that kind of miscommunication misfire has created volatility that didn't need to exist if they'd gotten their communication strategy right.
The market is worried in some quarters about inflation down the track, 5% potentially on the horizon for CPI. And for some market participants, they feel that this becomes entrenched in the market. You start to reset inflation expectations. Do you think that is a genuine concern when you look at how tight labour markets are, the supply chain and already some escalating prices in uh, some parts of the services economy? Yes, I think that the, the way they, they are looking at this is that if there are any more economic bumps along the road, either because of the way the pandemic plays out or because the demand story. Remember, we, the consumer demand story can evolve and evolve pretty quickly. Now, he was saying uh, on your interview that he isn't worried about the UK consumer, but with increased costs and bottleneck concerns in supply chains comes an eroding of household balance sheets and disposable income, which eventually will hit consumer confidence. So he, they're worried that if there's any hit to the demand story in the economy, if they hike rates prematurely, they don't have much of a lever to pull back down and ease again aggressively the way they did when the pandemic started. On the other hand, if inflation ends up being as high and persistent as everyone now believes it to be, they can quickly rate and they can raise rates and they can raise quite aggressively on the upswing. So it's that upside-downside uh, mismatch that they're really concerned about. That if they raise rates now, what else can they do to bring and bring down rates quickly enough and ease through into a demand shock if there is another demand shock to the economic picture? So they need to keep their powder dry to some extent. Um, Sunaina, great to speak with you this morning. Um, yesterday, Bailey was asked about the difference between um, the Bank of England at the moment and the Federal Reserve. And there has been a lot of commentary around how hawkish the Bank of England has been compared to the Fed. But he seemingly pushed back against this notion, um, calling attention to the fact that the QE programs in place are very different, that the UK works with um, fixed, uh, fixed amounts rather than open-ended. And then from a sequence perspective, it would make sense that the UK is looking at rate rises while the US is still thinking about tapering. Um, how would you sort of frame the relative hawkishness of the Bank of England versus the Fed at this stage? You know, the biggest difference has been in the communication strategy, where the Bank of England took itself into the camp of the Norways of the world and Australian Zealand of the world saying, yes, the rate hikes are imminent, if not immediate. Whereas the Fed has always said, listen, we're working on tapering first, and that's our framework. Now, the big difference between Fed and Bank of England is how the Fed has really pegged itself to the framework it adopted last year. Now, the frameworks are backward-looking as opposed to being current picture-driven and even forward-driven. And that begs a big question as to whether this framework is the right methodology for the Fed in this rapidly changing environment that has been created by the pandemic. So that's an open and philosophical question that many economists are having these days. But I think that the big difference now ends up being that the Fed is nowhere in the camp of raising rates imminently. They're working on their taper and they'll take their time to do that. And that gives them the time to be able to make sure that the economic story remains strong before they raise rates. Whereas the Bank of England went and said very clearly that they would raise and then they hesitated to raise and now that volatility has resulted from it. And now folks are expecting a December rate hike, but even that now has less probability weighted associated with it, given some of the confusion of this week. Mm. Well, Sunaina, with this policy backdrop in mind, when you look at investment opportunities, where do you think are the most attractive pockets of the market for investors to look at right now? Really three or four different areas where I would focus as retail investor today. The first is, 
you continue to see a, va- a really wide disparity between private market valuations and public market valuations. If you look at IPOs, you see this massive pops continue to happen as companies go public, suggesting that the private market valuations were more conservative than the public ones. There are several ways investors can play that stream, either through diversified private, private equity uh, listings like Petersil or, or Alrock or stocks of listed private equity managers uh, like the Apex 3Is of the world, or finally even the, the listed private equity funds like the KKRs of the world. Uh, the other place that I think every retail investor should be thinking about shoring up their portfolio if they haven't done so already is through real asset-backed um, stocks and other instruments. And so the one I like best is REITs because you do get the inflation protection from the real asset basis. So that is a huge thematic right now. Is how do you play real asset protection in portfolios? And the final one I'll mention is other thematic baskets of stocks like there are a couple of semiconductor ETFs out there, which are a great cyclical growth stock. And everything we've been talking about in the last few weeks, whether it's climate change, healthcare, energy, et cetera, will continue to require more and more memory semiconductors. So another good place to think about an ETF-driven thematic investment. So, Naina, thank you very much for breaking this all down for us and uh, talking uh, about the BOE impact too there. Sunaina Sinha Haldea with us, Global Head of Private Capital Advisory at Raymond James. Coming up on the show, Uber posts a bigger-than-expected net loss after taking a massive hit from its holding of troubled Chinese ride-sharing giant Didi. And for more from Jeff's interview with Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, check out the Squawk Box podcast, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. Let's get a check on the U.S. trading session yesterday. We had the S&P 500 and the tech-heavy Nasdaq both reaching fresh record highs. S&P logging about 0.4% worth of gains. The Nasdaq about eight-tenths of a percent. The Dow Jones bucking the trend slightly, down about nine per nine uh, basis points, 33 points to uh, 3,624. Um, in terms of the week-to-date moves, though, let's take a look at how U.S. markets stand coming into the session. From a sector perspective, uh, the uh, consumer discretionary basket led gains rising about 4.2% on the week coming into today's session. Financials have been the key underperformer over the course of the week, down about 70 basis points. And this is how the indices stack up, putting it all together for the first four days of the week. S&P 500, 1.6% higher coming into the session. The Nasdaq, about 2.8%. So outperformance uh, from the tech-heavy index. And the Dow Jones, about 0.8% higher on the week coming into today. Turning to uh, treasuries, let's take a look at how the fixed income markets are faring at the moment. We've got the 10-year trading around 1.53%, uh, the two-year around 04 
3% coming into the session. Asia markets, the overnight trade. We've got red across the board, uh, with the exception of the Australian market, which is 0.4% uh, higher at the moment. But we've got the Hang Seng down about 1.3%. You saw a couple of the big movers there, HSBC and Standchart, reacting to the Bank of England's surprise uh, decision to hold off on rates yesterday. So those two stocks dragging down the Hong Kong market. Nikkei 225 down about six tenths of a percent. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.